Hi, I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. In this podcast, I interview Chris Cuff, philanthropist and funds management hall of fame. Chris discusses life and business lessons. Welcome everybody to The Gaff. My name's Scott Fitzpatrick. I'm very excited today. I've got industry guru legend Chris Cuff with me. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm good, mate. So good to have you here. I've got like a million questions I want to get through to you in the next half an hour. But I want to start with uh, how we met, which was what I love about this industry is that we formed an advisory board many, many years ago, which is you know one of the podcasts that we run with Greg Gunther. And then Greg introduced us to Pish Gupta from IPAC, who was fantastic with his time. And that then led us to John McMurdo and your good self to, to knock on our door. And I must admit, when you knocked on our door, I was thinking, oh my God, they've knocked on the wrong door. But I'm not sure whether you can remember back that far, Chris. I do indeed. It was so good to have you come in as chairman of the group and bring you know, your wealth of knowledge. So let's just start with that bank of knowledge, Chris. In that We caught up the other day and you tell me you've got about 12 different gigs on the go at the moment. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. From you know, looking after investments, your own uh, philanthropy fund, you advise high net wealth families. Uh, there's a range of boards you're on. Have I missed anything? No, that's pretty right. Look, I, I try to explain simply to people to say I, I work in two main areas in, in investment world, giving people help, mainly on investment committees and the like, enlisted investment companies and high net worth. And then the other half of my operation, if you like, is philanthropic pursuits, trying to help philanthropists do things better. So that's how I try to simply explain myself. But it, yeah, it ends up with about a dozen different groups I work with. Great. And we're going to come back to that philanthropy piece because I know it's very, you know, at the centre of your heart. So, Chris, just take us back, though, from early beginnings through the colonial piece. Yeah, sure, Scott. Well, I um, went to university. I, I, qualif- I qualified as in um, commerce. I went on to be a, a chartered accountant, did my professional year, and... Pretty early in the piece, I thought, uh, no, I, I don't think I'm suited to be a chartered accountant. I always felt a little bit entrepreneurial and I wanted to uh, work for a single group rather than multiple groups. So I joined a, a fund, little known funds manager um, that ultimately became, uh, well, I was there for a small stint. That was an Edinburgh sit- subsidiary. But I went on from there to join a group that became known as Colonial First State. And that's where probably a lot of people got to know me. So I was at Colonial First State for 14 years, 13 of which I was the CEO. And we went from a startup uh, to Australia's largest fund manager in, in that space of uh, 13 or 14 years. So it was a fantastic journey. When I left, there was about 1,500 staff. And when I joined, there was three staff. So obviously went through a few changes there. And, and I'd like to think we we really did the best by our the investors we had on our books and the advisors who were looking after them. I always had a strong eye to that was the, the game. It wasn't about enriching ourselves. And I went from there. I um, 
I went across to the, the Challenger group, which was in those days controlled by the Packer family. And I went in as CEO to what was a very troubled organisation. Most people knew it at the time, including the regulator. And I was there to try and uh, get it out of a bit of a mess and, and get it uh, um, really pointed in a much better direction. So that was interesting. I wouldn't say I, I completely enjoyed that time of my life because it was, it was pressures from all over the place that I probably never imagined would be so great. But I went through it and I'm glad, I'm glad for it. And after that period of about uh, three and a half years, I think I was there, I decided um, I was going to do something completely different. So I, um, I joined a non-profit group actually called Social Ventures Australia and it was comprised of people like me to a degree. They were from the business world and they'd come together to try and help other charities to do things more efficiently and effectively. And that was, I found that quite interesting. But Social Ventures Australia itself was a charity, a not-for-profit. So it had its own uh, challenges, which were good. But look, I really enjoyed that time. And after doing that, it sort of, I felt, no, I didn't really want to be fully out of investments, nor did I want to be fully into not-for-profit stuff. So that's where I really had uh, a change to what I'd call a portfolio career, where I was working for lots of different people and the first one was Unisuper which I was on the board of for about 11 years and I was chairman for six of those years and then went on and I'm still involved with Unisuper as I'm still on the investment committee there and uh, went to join um, many others after that including recently a good one which is the um, the Paul Ramsey Foundation Australia's largest foundation it's about four billion dollars in size so that's interesting and yeah lots of other interesting well, little things along the way. It sounds like you've got some good variety there. That... Yeah, it's really good variety. I've, I've, I have uh, each of the groups have their own particular nuances. I Look, I really only work for people I like to work for. I, I long ago uh, knew I had the luxury to do that, so I choose pretty carefully. And, yeah, it's inter- really interesting. And every day I wake up, I don't... I don't always know exactly what's going to happen <laughs> for the day. I look oh, at my great. diary and see the variety of things that go on, and there's always things coming from left centre, particularly in the world of investing. I'm, I love the investment world, and I'm always uh, being introduced to new opportunities and, and new investment managers and the like. So there's just never a dull moment. With uh, that stuff. Let's get let's get onto that. But I do laugh that it is a nice stage in life where I tell people that when I see their phone, when I see their name appear on my phone, I've got to want to take the call. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the day the, the day you don't want to do that anymore, or for me, it's the day that I move on from from whatever uh, that that activity is. Yeah, I think that's great. So while I've got you here, so let's let's talk about investment. Let's go investment one hundred and one for our listeners out there, Chris. How do we choose? How do you choose a good manager? How do you choose a time frame? What are you looking for in an investment manager? Well, the first in, in 101 is always trying to understand what what your goal is, what, what you, what's your target until you know what you're aiming at. You don't know, you know, which uh, asset sectors to be in and, and which type of manager styles you might like. But if I think of my own portfolio, uh, I'm very particular on managers I use. They've got to be um, managers with a really good track record. Uh, I'm, I'm not overly fuss with the fee structure as long as I think it's reasonably fair but I don't mind performance fees 
Um, I like managers with concentrated portfolios and I really like managers who are completely independent thinkers. I, I don't don't have uh, much time for managers who just want to um, emulate or follow a benchmark, uh, particularly because, you know, I might as well just go and buy an index fund rather than, rather than pay them. So, yeah, I'm always looking for those active managers, uh, smart. I, I often tell people the best managers I know are always a little strange. I've <laughs> learned over the years <laughs> yeah. the best managers are very focused and they... They are, um, they can be, you know, um, sort of challenging people in other areas. <laughs> so, but, so that's good. So they're, they're, you're saying they're on, they're on the spectrum. <laughs> they're on the spectrum. That, that's for sure. Now, that's not 100% because there might be an investment manager or two listening to this podcast. Yes. But, you know, generally, yeah, they're, they're on the spectrum or, or close to, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's the type of things. But you've got to, again, know what you're aiming at. So, see, when I invest... I always invest long term, and I actually mean that. So when I look at investments for myself, I'm looking at a sort of seven to ten year time frame type of thing. So I've got many investments that are illiquid, um, that aren't valued that often, but I understand them well and believe that the value will come out later. So anyhow, that's so Chris, smattering. But for, yeah, go. No, no, no. So that's really great. So with a seven to ten year time frame. A, a, at what point do you go, oh, this manager is going really well for me or oh, I need to review this manager? And that's not just take, if they've had performance yeah. in a bad quarter, but it's just... Yeah, when I take you... a manager on, Scott, I, I really am not concerned about how they perform uh, for, the, say, the first three years when I've got them. Because to start with, I would have been looking at their past ex- experience and performance and all that, so they would have had to get through those hurdles for me to, to begin with. So it's probably about the three-year mark. I'll, I'll start to compare them to uh, other um, managers across the industry. And I'd say it's uh, if there's something not working right, it's probably around the five-year mark that I would change. But generally, I see ma- all managers have their time in the sun. Some uh, There's no manager that does really well all the time. But... There's plenty. There are some managers that will do really well uh, over continuous rolling five-year time frames. So yeah, that's that's okay. really how I think. And then, what are the sorts of things that get the managers in strife? Do you think is that they get too big, or they're a little bit lazy, or they lose focus, or lose people? Well, it's a few of those things. Certainly, size is an issue, but it depends on the asset class. If you're investing in Australian equities, say. You don't want a manager that's uh, too large because they can't move around the markets too well. So, you know, to me, I, I like managers with no more than about three or four billion dollars under management. But in the sweet spot is I prefer boutiques, and they tend to be managers that might have less than a uh, billion dollars. Uh, but de- again, depends on the, the part of the market they're in. If you're dealing with a small cap manager, well, probably I, I like them to have less than half a billion. So funds, the size of their funds is important and, and managers often can't resist their funds getting bigger um, because they get paid a fee based on the size of their, their fund, which is un, it's an unfortunate conflict, which has really only come by, overcome by managers with a, a very strong determination to keep it small and charge performance fees so they can, they can get a fair take uh, as well. But there's other funds that um, size is, is great. Like if you're going to invest in the fixed interest markets, you want to be in fixed interest funds that are 
as large as they can possibly be. The name of the game there is to have as many securities as you can. Um, and, that, you know, there's all type of variations in between. So size of firm is important. Uh, changes of, of um, manager personnel. Generally speaking, I, I've always thought there's only one or two individuals who are responsible for a fund and the, the rest, you know, they're analysts or marketing teams or whatever. They, you know, they're there in the background, but it's one or two guys calling the shots. So you're watching those and, and seeing, uh, you know, that they're still coming to work each day and they've still got uh, a thirst. Yep. And I'd say, look, the, the final thing that um, does that I look out for when you go through panic situations like we had last year with COVID in March and April, um, I've seen managers panic from time to time. You know, they, they lose it um, and, you know, that's that's a, a worrying sign. So you need managers who are, can hold their nerve in any condition. Great. Now, Chris, just off the back of the envelope, given the environment we're in today, what sort of return would you be happy with over the next five years? Well, again, the depends on the type of fund. I, I run a particular balanced fund for uh, one of the charities I, I, I work with, a charity I founded called Australian Philanthropic Services, which I think we'll talk about later, but that's a $150 million balanced fund. And I think, you know, it's going to be, um, it's a much tougher environment these days than, say, 10 years ago. I'd be very satisfied with a sort of 7 or 8% type of return, which is hard to think of because, or hard to feel really great about because, you know, it hasn't been that long ago where we've consistently had double-digit returns, you know, 10, 11, 12, or whatever, and, and for a number of decades. But we have to get our minds around lower returns, and I think that's sort of around the mark. Although even having said that, most balanced funds, including the one I run, our target, we've all got targets or we should have, and they tend to be something like inflation plus 3 or 4%. Yeah. And inflation's pretty low at the moment. Let's say it was 2%, and let's say your plus on top of that is 4 Well, that gives 6 um, And, you know, that's it's going to be an okay return. But that's um, that's after fees, so you've got to get a bit more of that because there's fees to come out, and For so sure. you know that's why you're probably aiming at you know seven or eight percent. That's great, Chris. Now just let's have a, just to finish that conversation around investment before we move into philanthropy, which is what are the headwinds? You know, we see some of these big index funds heading to Australia. Well, there's headwinds. I, I wouldn't want to be a retail fund manager anymore. I think the days of managing money, you know, that like when I was running Colonial First State, it was a big retail fund manager and and our fees were okay and there were other competitors there, whether it was BT or MLC or or whoever. Um, you know, we all did okay uh, for our shareholders. We, we made a reasonable amount of money. But it's much tougher now. It's not just the overseas influences. And one of the big influences on the Australian market is the industry funds, uh, one of which I work for, we said at the start, Unisuper. Now, groups like Unisuper can run um, very, very good ba- uh, balanced funds at around 50 to 60 basis points, and that's with all types of sectors included there, whether it's private equity or infrastructure or property, fixed interest, international shares, local shares, whatever. That's the all-up cost, including the cost of their staff, and that's a pretty 
keen costs. And I think um, many fund managers uh, cannot compete with the with the um, the big industry funds. But there is the uh, the if you like the invasion of index type funds. But there's some index funds are good, but there's many that I have a philosophical problem with because of the way an index fund works is if it's say the Australian share market is your index and let's say it's the ASX 200, well, your fund's going to look like that. But that's not a good allocation of capital. That's that's just, you know, you're adding up numbers or companies in a particular index and you're investing in that proportion. But that's not a good allocation of capital. So to me, you know, we need active fund managers out there in equities yep. to allocate capital properly. Um, and, you know, maybe that keeps the indexes overall balanced long term, but not if the index funds get too large. If, as they get larger and larger, I think the markets will become more inefficient and uh, active fund managers uh, will do um, best or should do best. So, you know, that's uh, yeah, index funds are, are a big thing, but they're not an evil. It's just no, no, know, I'll, not, I'll take your not point. necessarily great for everybody. Great. And let's, let's now move into philanthropy, which is, you know, something I know that you're passionate about with, with APS. And can you just maybe set the scene for us? Philanthropy in Australia, is it growing? Is it decreasing? Do we need more advisors in the area? Is it on people's minds? Well, I was, I was intrigued by this area when I began working at Social Ventures Australia that I mentioned earlier in this podcast. So I got to understand uh, the charitable sector and those who support the charitable sector, which is that big word, philanthropists. And uh, I, I was curious as to why philanthropy in Australia amongst our higher net worth uh, people seemed to be significantly lower than the equivalent overseas in, in America, Europe. And, you know, people used to say, well, they say the Americans are more generous. And as I looked into it, I thought, no, that's not the case. Um, uh, in America, there's death duties, and philanthropy helps offset the death duties. Also, America has a, an early culture of philanthropism, where we're a fairly new country still, uh, and there were various other things. But one of the big uh, problems in Australia was that we really didn't have um, uh, any organisations that really promoted philanthropy in a big way or um, looked at helped get government incentives in for that and the like. So it was immature. And that led me actually to to start an organisation, which I mentioned a second ago, called Australian Philanthropic Services, which is sole goal is to try to promote philanthropy in Australia in, in a very practical way. So I think Australians, we're probably behind the world in terms of our giving, but, but it's, it's increasing year by year and I think it's becoming better known. And particularly as there's a transfer of wealth in this country, occurring and you know the baby boomers uh, start to start to die soon uh, and I think um, you know there'll be a lot of wealth that is passed on to charity through different philanthropic vehicles. So Chris just that's fantastic if we could just go under the bonnet a bit of APS it, it has a range of services for advisors and for people wishing to pass on charitable uh, dollars. Yeah so uh, Australian Philanthropic Services, uh, acronym APS, it essentially does three things. So it um, inspires uh, uh, clients and their advisors about philanthropy through a vehicle, uh, through vehicles called ancillary funds. 
So what that means is there's two types of ancillary funds in the charitable sector. They're very much like the superannuation sector. You've got a private ancillary fund, which looks and smells very similar to a self-managed super fund. And then you've got a, a public ancillary fund, which is very similar to public office super funds. So you've got these two types of ancillary funds. So we're the biggest administrator of private ancillary funds in Australia, and I would uh, argue we're the most expert firm on those. So we talk to advisors about these. We talk to clients. We set them up. We administer them. And we're all also the um, we get more money in than anybody else into our own public ancillary fund known as Australian Philanthropic Services Foundation. And that that particular ancillary fund has around about 300 clients in it at the moment. It's growing quite rapidly. Uh, and we're educating advisors about uh, the use of that. And the third thing we do, we, we give um, people grant-making advice. So if you set one of these vehicles up or you invested in one of these and you want a bit of help on knowing who you should um, donate to, uh, we can assist in that way. We do due diligence on charities. We can make recommendations and, and the like. I think I think that's a beautiful piece of the puzzle. That last one, Chris. Yeah, because yeah, we're all a little bit naive, sceptical about where that where that charitable dollar goes to. That's right, and and again, there hasn't been a lot of people uh, groups around that can help there. So we're like a one stop shop. Um, we are, we are a charity ourselves, so I wanted to set it up uh, with people understanding we weren't enriching ourselves. I made sure there was a very respectable board there. I'm chairman of the board. We've got directors like David Gonski and Gail Kelly, Belinda Hutchinson, Michael Trail, Tim Fairfax, sort of well-known people in their, in their uh, field, and that gives us a lot of credibility. And it's been very successful. We're, we're growing rapidly, and I, I really think we're doing a good service. The clients who are with APS have collectively got about $1.1 billion now invested in in ancillary funds uh, that we look after. And they give away over $100 million a year now. So that's sort of some of the power that APS has brought to the market. Oh, that's, that is just a, it's a fantastic story, that Chris. And I know that, you know, you, you run that fund within there, with, which has a, a bunch of managers, which also help contribute to the yeah, cause. so I run the, uh, I'm the portfolio manager of the APS Foundation. Uh, again, it's around about 150 million in size. It's growing rapidly. It'll probably between now and 30th of June, it will probably increase by another 30 or 40 million because <clears throat> we come into the, the tax season and people are uh, anxious to get a, a, a donation. The way these ancillary funds work, you, you, you put when you put your money in, you get a, a full tax deduction for the money that you're putting in. And, and then once your money is in these trust vehicles, you give away a portion of your your balance of your account every year. So if you like it, it breaks the nexus between the timing of the giving and the timing of the tax deduction. Um, but it's been it's been very uh, successful, and and it's it is a word of mouth thing. And I think advisors are. Uh, getting to know it more. I mean, again, we're probably the the sole group that can get around the advice industry and and tell them uh, how it works. And and um, yeah, it's been been very successful. Uh, it's a real credit to you that one. Now, I want to move on to the advice world, Chris. Just to, to finish the puzzle, in that I'm after your thoughts on what what you think would makes a great wealth advisor. 
And I, sorry, and, I, and my starting premise is that I know you're passionate about advice, and and you've been to my lead advisor course. Yeah, I absolutely have, and I'd recommend any of your listeners to go to it. I I really value the advice industry. When you see good advisors and you hear them uh, uh, talk to clients and and uh, understand the knowledge they have, it's it's fantastic. When a good advisor, you you just can't get enough of. But I, I know the advisory world has. Uh, often uh, had a tarnished reputation because there've been um, bad eggs, like there there are in any industry. Um, but it's an industry dealing with money, so it feels particularly painful if there's advisors out there not doing the right thing. But I believe the vast majority uh, do, and it's essential. The hardest thing these days, though, Scott, is I think um, you know the entire population needs financial advice of some type or other. At various stages of their life and there's just not enough advisors to go around and the business models don't work that well to try and service you know the sort of average mum and dad on the on the street so it's it's problematic that way yeah it is it's it's a big issue uh that the affordability of advice for mum and dad just isn't there from a compliance regulatory point of view it's just far too difficult to give advice in that particular space now, I know you're, 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 you spend some time in advice as well. You advise some high net wealth. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not so much a, a, a financial advisor in that, that wider sense, <clears throat> like a well-qualified advisor. I more um, uh, sit with them and look at investments. That, uh, so I sit on investment committees for a number of high net worth, very wealthy families, and we, we sit around the table and talk about their construction of the investment portfolios and the, the risks we want to take and I introduce um, them to managers they may not know and and the like. But it's it's more sitting with others and, and working on the investment side. When it comes to sort of doing the day-to-day work of a, an advisor, that's not me, but I see that through a lot of groups that I have touch points with and I see it a lot in um, Unisuper too, which is uh, like most of the industry funds now, they have a, an advisory uh, side to them to be able to um, help look after their their hundreds of thousands of, of clients. Yeah, and Chris, just to help me, just to finish that piece on the high net wealth, they're no different to you and I uh, in dealing in this market. You know, it's the same conversation about what return do we want, what level of risk do we want to take. Yeah, it's exactly look. Good, good advisors, they focus on the goals of the client. So you can work out a good advisor from a pretty ordinary advisor very quickly. Good advisors, if I'll sit with a client, first of all, you're trying to work out what are the goals you, Mr. and Mrs. Client, trying to satisfy. And then, you know, a discussion of financial goals, that is. But it's, there can be lifestyle goals, obviously, as well. But And then it's to say whether they're realistic or not to achieve financially with the timeframes involved and then to look at what assets you might need and timeframes you might uh, require to generate returns to meet those goals. So it's quite a, you know, it's a stepped process, but it begins with an advisor looking at the goals of individuals and discussing those goals. A good advisor should not, in my view, be playing in the weeds of, or well, should you invest in that stock or that stock or this yep. stock? Yep. That's the, that's that's somebody else's work, and that's at the end. 
you know, the starting process is, again, what are you after and why? It's just like saying if you're going on holidays, fine, where are you heading to? Okay, where are you going there? How are you going to get there? Is train, plane, car? What you, <laughs> and when you're there, what are you going to do next? And it's just a procedural thing like that. I love that. It's, you know, that's my, what I like to talk about is how do we get you from point A to point B with the least amount of risk and highest degree of probability. That's exactly right. So, Chris, let's just move on to personal now. Um, just looking at things like, you know, your four L's. If we're sitting here in a few years' time, I'm always trying to teach people about content and context. But what are the big contexts for you in a few years? If we're sitting here in five years, your four L's from how you're living your life? Well, you're going to have to remind me as we go, Scott, about the four L's. I'll go through it. How you live? First one, living your life. What are you doing? Living my life. So I don't actually expect to be doing anything different in five years. I must say as a beginning... These, uh, where I said I work for about 12 different groups, I don't like that word work because that's not for, for me. Yep. I do things that I enjoy. So every day for me, I'm doing something enjoyable and surprise. it surprises me sometimes that um, people also pay me for some of it. <laughs> so every day is a fun day for Good. me. Right. Uh, and week, I don't really have the delineation of weekend and during the week because my... My kids are uh, largely, not fully, but largely grown up. I've yep. still got a 16-and-a-half-year-old. But, you know, living, I'm trying to get a balance all the time. I'm trying to do stuff for my body, for my mind, as in fitness, yep. and then nourishment for my mind in whichever way that comes. Uh, that's really important. I think, um, you know, I'm always thinking, thinking, thinking about unusual things, and, you know, I like to sort of probe in that way. What's happening in your family life's important, you know. I guess uh, I've just had uh, the first um, grandchild has just arrived, so, you know, that's a new stage of life. And uh, one of my sons is just, you know, buying his first house and with his wife and I'm trying to help them through that. So family stuff becomes very important. Yep. What you're doing in the community is important. I mean, it's not just Australian philanthropic services. I'm, I'm heavily involved in in another couple of enterprises that generate a lot of money for the charitable sector, including yep. a, a listed company called Hearts and Minds Investments Limited, which is a story unto itself, and it's great, really good fun that. But helping in other ways in your local community, that's that's all all part of it. So I don't know if I got all the else there. No, you but... did really well in terms of <laughs> I, what I heard through there was trying to get some balance around your health, make sure that's good. I heard a lot about giving back into the community and I uh, heard a lot about family sitting inside there as well. So I heard some big context running through there. And I know legacy yeah. is a big piece of your puzzle. Yeah, look, I, I have an obsession and it is an obsession of um, being involved in things that are going to continue uh, after I've, I'm no longer involved with them, either I'm dead or I've moved on to something else. And that's that's where things like... Australian Philanthropic Services has been great. Um, we, as a charity, we're not yet um, break even, but we're very close to it. And once we break even, I know that thing's going to be there uh, forever. But things like things I did at Colonial um, First State, uh, you know, they still go on. Uh, as you know, most of the activities I, I do, I, I think if you're with an activity, if you can improve it, then you hand it on to someone else, that's great. You know, my grandfather used to always say there's three types of people in life. He said there's people that 
make things happen. There's people who watch things happen. And there's people who wondered what happened. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm in the first category. I was just born that way. I, sometimes I think it's a disease. <laughs> On balance, I think it's good. But it, it makes me always a bit itchy, scratchy and looking for something useful to do. I'm going to steal that off your granddad, that line, those three things. Thanks for yes. that. And now I'm just going to finish with, with um, just two things for me. What, what do you think has been the best habit or the best uh, best piece of your routine, whether it's daily or weekly, that's held you in good stead? Well, this will be a funny one, but uh, long ago I, I learned how therapeutic for me massage was. So I, the highlight of my week is always... Uh, Mondays I I have off. It's a day I work on myself. I go to a, a personal trainer first thing in the morning and after that I have a, a massage and I look forward to that massage like you wouldn't believe. It's actually a period of time for me, even though the, the, the lady sort of uh, needs her f- fingers into me and makes me scream sometimes, <laughs> but most of the time I, I can actually uh, completely chill out and it's like a meditation for me. Um, so I, that's that's really a, a, a huge thing for me. So it's a small thing, but a huge thing, and, and it's it's a routine. Every I like routines. Most people do like routines, and that's one I've I've been in for a, about fifteen years, I think. And it sounds like you're very you're well organised in terms of I, time. <laughs> I am a well organised person. I have to be with um, when you work for a lot of different groups diary diary management is pretty important and and also saying no to things quickly if they don't fit uh and touch things once i like to think you know if i get an email on something i try to solve it on the spot rather than yep. oh, i'll do that later later on i'll do that later on and, yeah um but that that means yes i'm, I'm firing on all cylinders <laughs> which is which is fine i just hope i uh I keep my grey matter right between the ears so I can keep firing on all cylinders. Very good. And now, mate, we're going to finish with the last one, which was the which was the big one, which is for all those listening out there, if you had one life lesson, looking back. Oh, a life lesson. I mean, there's points in your career where they were a real turning point. That's not necessarily a life lesson, but for me, I had a real turning point when I moved from chartered accounting into the world of investment management. That was just a fluke. I just saw an ad in the paper that, quite frankly, was the job was paying more than what I was at, and it sort of it was a bit of a startup type of thing, and that got my um, entrepreneurial spirit uh, wondering. And as I look back, I think that was lucky. You know, I was right in at the ground floor of this brand new industry that is that has uh, really taken off. So that was that was great. But I think you know the life lessons. Like always, think about that. It's just get educated, get educated, and and don't um, don't try to, to be the boss straight away. I gave a I gave a, a lecture yesterday, believe it or not, at uh, at the uh, University of New South Wales to master's students, and one of the things I said is become great at your profession. You know, often people say these days you need you'll have three or four different professions during your career for the kids starting out these days. And I think, well, good luck to you if you want to do that. But I still think do one rather than move around too much and become a master of it. And to become a master of it, you've got to work with good people. You've got to work for years on it mm. and just keep educating yourself yeah. all the time. That's that's the most important thing. With 10,000 hours to mastery. 
Chris, ten thousand hours thing, yeah. Oh, mate, that is just a well, that is a great life lesson and a beautiful piece of wisdom um, to to share with everyone. And I, you know, just to, just to finish that, I think that the decision that you made to go into funds management, whilst you think it was likely, a lot of people may not have made that decision. They may have stayed where they were. So. There's a little piece of entrepreneurial spirit kicking in early there for you, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know if you've got time, Scott. I can tell you my best entrepreneurial story. Go. My best entrepreneurial story was when I was five years old. I was living in the country and uh, a tooth fell out, so I put it on the mantelpiece. Sure enough, the next day, in those days it was pounds, shillings and pence, so I got <laughs> a strippence, which I thought was pretty good, and I thought, you beauty, I've got an idea. So I went out to my dad's workshop. We lived on a big property. Oh, no. And then I went to the back of a, an old slaughter yard and I, fe- and I had a huge jar and all these skulls of sheep. <laughs> so I got the hammer and knocked out as many teeth as I could. I filled this jar up, which was about 30 centimetres high and about uh, 15 centimetres across. I filled it almost to the brim and I put that on the mantelpiece. I thought, I'm going to make my money... This is at five years old. But I got a note the next day that said uh, the tooth fairy knew exactly what had happened and uh, it doesn't work with other uh, with sheep's teeth and the like. So I was brought back down to earth, but for a fleeting moment, I thought I was in. Oh, you discovered the rainbow to the pot of gold. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, that has been fantastic having that half an hour with you. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate our friendship and... Uh, the help you've given our organisation over the years. So thank you very much, mate. A pleasure, Scott, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to another episode of the GAF podcast. We're all about empowering advisors, giving them additional tools for their toolkit to give great advice. Great advice leads to great business frameworks, which leads to great results for the community. 